0: friends welcome back to the dirty delights podcast today we have lucy jones who is a journalist author and owner of one of the most wholesome twitter pages i've ever seen her most recent book losing eden why our minds need the wild is a memoir packed with research detailing her recovery from addiction with the help of nature lucy thanks for doing this
1: pleasure thanks for asking me
0: i'm really looking forward to this uh first and foremost what is the crack
1: um the crack's good. Yeah, I was feeling a little bit irritable this morning and then I just we went for a walk me and my family in the woods for an hour or so and I feel completely different. Um and I feel really really quite really quite fine.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I I, I notice every time that I go for a walk around some trees, it's almost like I feel lighter afterwards. And yeah, I guess we can we can um, we can talk about this a bit more in detail uh, as the podcast goes on. but Yeah, uh, we'll
1: get into it. It's very restorative. Um, yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah, how about uh, you? How, 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 what's the crack with you?
0: The, the crack is good here. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I, I feel quite good. Uh, I've been inspired by your work also to try and get to local parks as much as I can. So I've kind of made that a part of my daily routine. Which has definitely helped, yeah, big time.
2: Yeah. Great, um, Seb. Yeah, no, I mean, I was going to say I was trying to, but uh, the Spanish government won't allow me. So, uh, unfortunately, our lockdown's a bit stricter. So, I'm kind of having to deal with um, city life. And there's not, I mean, there's a few trees around my area, but that is literally, it. I mean, I'm talking three. Uh, so, not too much nature of the last couple of months. But, uh,
0: but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into it. Yeah, beautiful. Um, Lucy, I'm looking forward to talking about your book, but first, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and how the book came about?
1: Sure. So, um, I've been a journalist um, for about 12 or so years. Um, I mostly write about kind of science and health and environment these days. I'm a freelance journalist, so um, I write for a variety of people like The Guardian and Independent and BBC. Um, I started out uh writing about music and culture and the arts um which I still do a little bit of um I worked at the telegraph for a bit and then enemy magazine um and then yeah so I've been freelance since going since leaving enemy about i don't know maybe 6 years ago or 7 years ago um uh the book um, started life about 8 years ago um, when i um I was recovering from a spell of addiction and, and depression um and as we will talk about nature became a really important part of my recovery um so I started to to um investigate how and why that works um I live in Hampshire in England um have a couple of young children and uh yeah that's me
0: Beautiful, thank you. Uh, I, I was. What came to mind is that um, Seb and myself were talking last week about how many Indigenous cultures view the idea of depression as separation, either from like Mother Earth themselves or the people around them. W- would you mm. subscribe to this also?
1: That's such an interesting question, um, and that's made me want to look more into that idea. Um, I definitely feel like um, when I. I'm um, in a depression, it it does feel like a visitor. Um, not necessarily kind of separate, but it does feel kind of like a visiting thing, which um, you know, when it leaves or when whatever I do, um for me it's antidepressants really and and therapy. When um my last my last bit of depression I think ended about September last year, and I just remember feeling Oh, just such a relief when it lifts, you know, of like, wow, it's it's gone. It's like a cloud that's lifted. So I mean, I don't know whether I see it as separate because I think I, I mean I've 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 had spells of depression since I was a late teenager. So, you know, it can feel quite familiar when it happens. Um mm. But yeah, I don't know, what about you? What's your feeling about that? <sighs>
0: it kind it makes sense to me because i guess for instance when when i'm in a forest um i i feel like if ever there were like oppositions or opposing sides that i am now on one side if that makes sense yeah Mm -hmm. like almost yeah almost the things that i was restricting maybe a lot of like I don't know like negative self-talk or whatever was going on before just being very stressed and when I'm in the forest it feels um like th- there's there's I don't need to battle this or something I it's it's very hard to describe but mm. when I when I heard that it it did resonate I, I kind of understood it and then if you if you branch it out further for so um, if you were to look at separation from like themselves or the people around them, I can I can understand even understand that even further. Um, because I feel often we aren't given the time or encouraged to take the time to really um learn about ourselves and uh, just really be with ourselves with little distractions and how everybody has such busy schedules that it's often it's often very hard to really get the time to connect with people you know because everyone's can only fit into certain schedules and so I understand it from that point of view and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Gabor Mate but he he branches that even further and he says uh, a separation or like disconnection from your work uh, which I have met a lot of people that are experienced this as well so it, it, when i hear when i hear that like depression as separation or uh disconnection it it makes more sense than i'm able to articulate right now yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> um, What about you? Of it. Yeah. okay thanks what about you seb
2: um yeah I, I definitely agree i mean obviously i think we're most people who kind of live in at least in the western world we're probably disconnected from nature anyway um in large parts you know especially when you compare us to maybe people who live in the Amazon still um but I definitely feel that uh it's I've kind of almost feel that depression is it's like this evil mistress who kind of um makes you want to become a recluse and not kind of get out into the real world not kind of talk to people and so you I personally feel whenever I've had my bouts with it, that you have levels of separation, whether that's from your friends, but then even separation from your interests, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I love to cook, I love to write poetry and these things, whether I'm any good at them is another question. But um, (laughs) when I'm kind of in those kind of sad estates, let's say, I I feel a separation from those, from those loves and those passions. I don't want to do those things anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of feel completely isolated. And then the, in kind of contrast to that, to try to make myself feel better is when I feel that connectivity, Uh, when I feel that connectivity with people that I love, when I feel that connectivity with things that I love to do, that's when I kind of feel that I'm kind of um, crossing over that bridge and getting over that hump. So I, I think obviously they, when they talk about it with the Amazonian tribes, I think they kind of, Deal with it on a much more literal level of separation from the earth, because to them, their earth is every the earth is everything. It's the provider of their food. It's the provider of their shelter. It's the provider of their medicines. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, and maybe for us, we're I mean, not maybe. I think we're almost certainly more um, disattached than they are. But um, but yeah, I I, I would I agree with that sentiment, and I think it's it's a simplistic way of looking at it. But I kind of like that simplicity for sure. Um, I I wanted to ask Lucy, you you, one of your um, pieces whilst we're kind of talking about this you say and this is just a quote that you, I took you said um I understood that um time in nature softened the voices in my head and stabilized my mood um but I didn't at the beginning understand what was happening to my body brain and mind mm-hmm. uh how do you differentiate between the brain and the mind because it's something that I've been thinking about recently and when you read that it really jumped out at me
1: mm. well I guess it's a funny one isn't it because like, does the mind even exist? It's quite a nebulous concept. Like we know what the brain is, you know, it's that organ that is on our heads. But the mind is a little bit more kind of elusive and um, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's there's not really like a concrete definition of it. I guess in that context, I was thinking about um, you know, the brain from a neuroscientific point of view. So when I'm um in nature, for example, I find that um the the kind of ruminative processes and the brooding um and and like as i say in that quote the kind of voices in my head are quietened and and at that point when i read and when i wrote that sentence um um before i'd kind of researched it um i knew a little bit about you know the neuroscience of of rumination and so on and the default mode network which is um associated with the sense of self mm. so i was i was kind of i was wanting to investigate that um and think about what neuroscience could tell us um about you know that relationship between um nature and mental health and the brain i mean in terms of the mind i guess that's a much more kind of fluid concept isn't it and probably i'm i i would use that to mean um I kind of a, a wider variety of cognitive cognitive uh, kind of elements and relationships so right. you know we don't know much about the brain then when I embarked mm. on this inquiry um for losing Eden I thought I thought maybe I'd find more evidence but what for the brain I mean I've, I found absolutely mm-hmm. loads of evidence but but what what I realise is actually we really don't know that much about the brain. Like it's all quite fledgling, um, but we know more about the mind because we can kind of, um, you know, we can. There are studies about you know how people feel or what their emotions are or what their cognition is or how their memory's doing. You know those other different um, facets of the mind, which are a kind of I don't know, yeah, more varied. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, yeah yeah fascinating stuff
0: yeah it it is it is something that I'm very interested in as well and it's almost like the more I think I'm learning the more I realize the less I know
1: yeah right <laughs>
0: yeah. right um, I
1: think with the um I mean with the mind stuff and and the the, the quietening of the voices um you know there's so many ways of looking at at that idea and you know it's a it's a quite a common experience that people go into the natural world and they will say their minds feel kind of soothed or hushed or they stop worrying um, and I guess one of the kind of obvious ways that must work is by distraction and you know the fact that if you notice things in nature which I mean, I've been doing a lot more of in the last few weeks because I'm getting out even more than normal um, you know, it just kind of takes you out of yourself and um, you know, there are kind of avenues of intrigue. If you like spiders, you can look for spiders, if you like colours, you can look for colours, if you are into birds, you can do bird watching. Um, so I guess that's like a simpler example of how, you know, how nature con- connection can affect the mind.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's it's I don't think I've ever met someone that said, Oh, I don't really enjoy spending time in nature. Or I don't feel better for for going there, and I was, I know this is probably a loaded question, but <laughs> what do you think is really happening to our bodies and our brains with, when we are surrounded by these trees, these birds, this this life that we are so often uh, isolated from?
1: Well, this so this was the question that kind of propelled my inquiry, um, and when and when I set out to write Losing Eden, I thought there'll probably be one kind of silver bullet piece of evidence maybe to explain why being in the woods or by the sea feels good um but in fact what i found and which blew my mind was that it's a really um it's a it's more like a club sandwich of of effects so for example when you say you're in a wood um or a forest or a park or or so on um nature uh you recover from stress more quickly and more completely in a natural environment compared to a to a built environment. The reason that is is because um, contact with the trees and the green. Uh, activates the parasympathetic nervous system which is the the one uh, associated with kind of rest and digest processes and calming down as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system which is you know fight or flight which you just don't want to be in too much because it can lead to inflammation um and that's the, that's the kind of side of the nervous system, which has probably switched on a little too much for people who live in towns and cities. Um, you know, the, the roads are really busy and, you know, you've got someone trolling you online and, uh, uh, you know, you've got to pay your mortgage or, or, you know, all these kind of things, which now mean that we are, in a kind of slightly stressed out state more more than, than is good for us and hence why stress-related illnesses are on the rise. So so the nervous system is one way. Um, and then one of the things I found really interesting, which when I heard this, I thought this must be kooky. This is woo-woo kind of rubbish. So this is the idea that, um, you know, when you, when you are around soil, if you get soil, soil in your hands, it has an antidepressant-like effect. So mm-hmm. the idea is that there is a microbacteria found in soil which has serotonin uh, enhancing qualities. And so I looked into this and actually it it is absolutely true. So there's um a lot of evidence and brilliant studies showing that this one bacteria um which is in soil when kind of ingested so inhaled if you're out and about and so on um it actually has an antidepressant like effect um you know which explains maybe why so many people get a buzz from gardening um and then you know, the, one of my favorite findings was about um petrichor which is a beautiful word which means the the smell of the earth after it has rained um and studies suggest that that compound activates brain waves associated with calmness and relaxation. Um, mm. I mean, and then there's there's so many things I could mention. You know, there's the circadian rhythms and the sunlight. There's uh, negative air ions, which are found around kind of water and the sea, which which have um, antidepressant-like effects. Um, there's all the brain, the brain evidence, immune function, lowering of inflammation um yeah I kind of when I when I when I started this journey I thought um you know I have a lot of friends who don't like you were saying Jim it's not like they'd say they feel worse after being in a park but they don't go to nature for their relaxation you know they watch telly or go to a club or all the things lots of people do for their for their rest and relaxation but what what I found with um writing Losing Eden was that even if you're not a tree hugger or, you know, someone who wants to go wild swimming all the time, being around background nature um, is really crucial for for individual and population level mental health. So the amount of trees you have on your street, if you can walk through a park to the shops instead of down a, a busy street, you know, just having a little bit of nature in your life also has measurable uh, impacts as well which of course has uh kind of social social implications too for how we design our societies
2: Uh, lucy when when we talk about um immersing yourself in nature i think especially you know, maybe as people from the UK think of um, woods and green rolling fields, but that kind of strikes me as a very British centric view. Are there any other habitats that are just as beneficial? You know, I'm thinking about a desert in Mexico, for example, or rocky mountainous regions. Is there one specific element that is beneficial above all others? I mean, people kind of naturally think that um, flowing water is inherently relaxing, for example.
1: Mm, That's a really interesting question. Um, So yeah, I looked into kind of preference judgments and the kind of psychology of um, uh, nature and aesthetics uh, in the context of this idea biophilia um, which was popularized by a biologist called E.O. Wilson and it's the idea that because we evolved um, and have spent 99% of our human evolutionary history in the natural world we have a kind of genetic disposition and an innate kind of drawing towards nature um Mm. and in this field um people have found that across the board sorry um scientists have found across the board people tend to favor landscapes which are similar to those of the savannah um where where we evolved so that will be things uh, kind of a plane um mm-hmm. certain type of tree called an acacia tree which has um kind of kind of spreading canopy um mm. little leaves but spreads quite far um, okay. a bit of water as you say and then there's this idea of prospect refuge which is that you would have you could have a prospect so as in a view across so you mm-hmm. could, you're, you're you're able to see what's going on and then refuge um, so there might be a tree you could shelter in or so on um, so that kind of those elements have been found across the board to be preferred by people um, and i think i mean you can kind you could kind of get that from a rocky mountainous range, you know, even a desert to, mm-hmm. you know, a, like a posh English garden. Um, mm. But those tend to be the environments people are drawn to. And I mean, the kind of environments that, you know, wealthy people will will build um, the land in that way that has that, yeah. that borne out. But it's a really interesting point about different landscapes. I think, um, you know, most of us live in urban areas. Most of us live, live in towns and cities. Uh, and you know don't have access to woodlands or forests or or mountains um but what what I found was that urban nature and kind of even like a road verge or, or a park mm-hmm. and, and street trees have a really important um effect on on people's mental health um one study found that the more trees on the street um, seem to be linked somehow to lesser antidepressant prescriptions on that street. You know, which isn't to say yeah. and I make this point in losing Eden, look at more trees, throw your pill <laughs> yeah. that's obviously not what, you know, that would be ridiculous. Um but it just suggests that, you know, even a a tree or or a park is better than nothing. Um and on that whole antidepressant thing, I do like to make the point that nature was part of my recovery alongside psychiatry and psychotherapy um because you know it's not it's not a cure-all and sometimes i'm i can feel absolutely rubbish and going into nature doesn't help at all And that's really annoying Mm. so i don't want to set it up as like something which is going to cure depression because it's much more complicated than that um i've been on antidepressants most of the last 10 years um and i need to have them um and yeah. nature is a kind of maintainer so yeah right. I, I like to make that point that it's part of you know it's an a, it's a therapeutic potential
2: yeah but not yeah important your... to make that distinction yeah yeah for sure for sure you you mentioned just when you're answering that um you you kind of touched on gardens and i kind of had a point where i want to ask you you know when you talk about the importance of nature and immersing yourself in it i wonder whether gardens have the same impact like humans are notorious um, and incredibly um, successful at forcing our environments to bend to our will Mm -hmm. do you think a hyper-controlled environment you know such as a japanese garden for example can have the same effects as walking through the woods do we need that element of wild quote-unquote in order to truly benefit from nature
1: that's such a good question and really interesting um so i think you know humans are um heterogeneous everyone's different we're all quite diverse you know you might love very neatly designed hanging baskets i might love um swimming in kind of wild rivers there doesn't seem to be a kind of template as it were um, apart right. from the um, the landscape the the kind of savanna landscape that i've mentioned um mm. i i think gardening there's a lot there's a lot of evidence for gardening improving mental health and that's just growing all the time at the moment um there's also evidence about um the biodiversity of nature being linked to better mental health So, for example, Mm -hmm. um, listening to birdsong has been linked to kind of higher feelings of well-being and decreased stress. But if the birdsong is more diverse, so if there's more different types of birdsong, that Mm -hmm. effect is increased. Um, And, you know, there's going to be more birdsong in wilder areas or even you know community gardens in urban areas which are mm. you know which are created in order to provide habitats for a biodiversity and, and and lots of different species um you know saying that you know it, it is all cultural preferences you know some people will just like to have very neat neat flower beds that's not something that i particularly like um you know but that's not to say that i'm right i mean obviously monocultures are not great for nature mm. um but these things are very culturally influenced um as well it's a very complicated relationship which is why it was so interesting to write a book about it and um you know there was a lot of this this area in the hinterland of losing eden which was cut in the end but about kind of preferences and and the idea of the wild and the wilderness and how um the wilderness only really exists if you live in an industrialised, developed nation. Um, but it's such a kind of nebulous concept almost. Like I feel wild when I'm swimming in a river in Hampshire where I live and I've got like bugs in my hair or whatever. But I am yeah. like three minutes from a busy road. So, mm. um, yeah. Mm. What about you guys? What are your kind of nature preferences like for you, what would be like your ideal restorative nap- i would landmarks? say
2: I, I would definitely say flowing water for me is big if I can find like any, like a ravine or a stream or something like that, that's big mm. um, for me. Uh, I've kind of, I used to live in Hampshire. I used to live in Alton. Um, oh yeah, and, uh, <laughs> Yeah. And my dad, my mum and dad spent hours on like this Japanese kind of garden, which is kind of where the question came from. Mm. Wonder how much use that actually was, but they, they, it was tiered and all sorts. Um, you couldn't have, it couldn't have been more controlled if it tried, but um, I, I definitely, I like that. I like, and then, just like you said, uh, planes, like you said, just kind of that open expanse for me is huge. I'm not too keen on mountains. We used to have a house up there once in Italy in the mountains. And whilst the views are spectacular, kind of, I, I'm too lazy to want to hike for three hours to, you know, people say you have to earn those views. Mm. I'd just rather have them view- <laughs> at your doorstep. Um,
1: yeah. But
2: uh, so yeah, for me, planes and tri- and like some sort of kind of flowing water is huge for me.
1: Mm. And
2: then, and then, I'm not sure if this kind of ties in, but weather. Um, I've moved to Spain, and and my some of my all of my Spanish friends who had moved to England, and then they've consequently moved back to Spain. They always complained about the weather, and I always mm. thought, oh, I mean, what a load of tosh. I mean, you get you should get used to it, you know. Like my dad, who's Italian. He always said, I didn't move to England for the weather. I moved to England for the job opportunities, you know. So you you you've made your bed now, lie in it. And I kind of. I agreed with him and then I moved out to Spain and I realized how much difference, not the heat necessarily, but light mm. having light all throughout the day, basically um, nine months of the year. I mean, we can sit out in a terrace in Madrid almost year round and that makes a huge difference um, because I've noticed it makes a difference in culture as well. Uh, in Spain, you don't spend a lot of time in your house because the weather's so good. Yeah. And so the whole uh, the whole culture in Spain is to be outside right to be outside with your friends and that's socializing so nice. and that's that's uh, purely because of the weather so I'm like I mean obviously it's nature I suppose so yeah light trickling water and and green fields for me would be like the biggest three kind of ingredients if I could have them what about yourself Jim for,
0: for sure uh, well when I was I was living in Denmark for the last six months and almost every day we would just Run into this to the cold sea over the winter, and uh, I can hands down say it's like a top three feeling like of the feelings I've ever felt. Like, you just feel so at peace and calm. Uh, yeah, it's that, that, yeah, that's pretty um, untouchable in terms of the feeling you get after it. Although it is incredibly difficult and incredibly cold. Uh, the, the other thing is just being surrounded by by trees for sure yeah that does it for me also just like hearing the birds sing and and no like recent noise if that makes sense like the idea of a of a car beeping or something modern you know it's just nice to be able to oh theoretically i could have been here a few hundred years ago and nothing would have changed that's nice for me
1: that you guys both mentioned water i think that um one of the things that i discovered which another thing i thought come on this cannot be for real um (laughs) is the um this 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 thing called negative ions so Mm -hmm. it's kind of um so when there's flowing water uh, like a waterfall or or a sea or anything where water is kind of flowing and, and being um the atoms are being kind of pushed together, that actually um that releases uh ions into the air, which in studies have been found to increase serotonin in, in humans. Um Yeah, I mean, it's just like, what? Because there's a river I go swimming in near me, which is super cold. And and I I relate to what you're saying, Jim, about uh, the calming, the the peace of swimming in cold water. And I always used to sit on this waterfall bit and just like chill. And then I read these studies and I was like, oh my God, it's not just the water and the coldness and the trees. It's also what's in the air. Um, You know, there's so much that we can't see because our senses are quite basic compared with other animals um but that's one of the things which i found quite cool
2: Wow. Lucy just a quick question just to follow up um I just asking this purely because I know Jim um is a bit of a freak and he's a fan of cold showers in fact he only ever has cold showers which I just can't get my head around but <laughs> the, que- the question uh because I scold myself when I go into the shower but the question is is c- can that almost be replicated in the home scenario I'm just thinking in terms of you know a cold shower maybe replicating kind of a waterfall you've got that flowing water and then maybe a hot kind of stagnant bath for example where the water is just kind of still and not really moving is that is there any kind have you looked into that is there any kind of research that would show that maybe they kind of replicate and maybe jim's there is actually method in jim's madness <laughs> um
1: i haven't actually, i haven't looked at the research for like cold showers although i'm sure there must be some because you know it's it is quite common and athletes do it don't they or people have kind of mm. cold cold baths ice baths and so on um so the um I can talk about – so that there's there's studies which suggest that when, you know, the body is in cold water, it mm-hmm. the, the kind of the stress mechanisms are um, are triggered and then that can lead to the release of endorphins. Um, right. Uh, my husband and me were talking about this the other day because he was like, we should just get like a little bucket, a big bucket full of cold <laughs> water for <you> in the <laughs> garden that you can just dump <laughs> in. Because uh, that would help. Because I find that swimming in cold water is like so effective for me when I am having bad um, mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to him, "Yeah, but it, for me, it is the experience of like being in nature as well. So, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. the mixture of of the water, but also yeah." like at the moment, like the dams or flies, the dragonflies, the mayflies, the, uh-huh. you know, the sound of the cuckoo, et cetera. Um, yeah. Which makes it just like, but, but then I think that it, there's lots of anecdotal evidence about cold water swimming. Um, um, but yeah, I don't know about the cold shower for me. It wouldn't be the same. But, um, I don't know. What about the gym? You do it. And is that, is that a kind of mental health thing?
0: for sure right i, I was only going to say this morning i woke up and i don't know if you get sometimes like you sometimes i i feel kind of down but I, I can't even attribute a reason for it and uh that happened this morning and it took me a while to get out of bed and i just went into the cold shower and i swear after that that's exactly how i felt like just stuff was going on in my body that i didn't know what but it felt amazing and then it was and then yeah, it was just uh, like endorphins were running to me. I almost felt like a little high, and then just t- my my attitude just completely flipped. Uh, How like, long do
1: you do it for? How long are you in the cold shower for?
0: It it, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends on the day. I would say between three or four minutes.
1: I'm going to do this. Okay, I'm going to try this. Yeah, Luffy. Yeah. Every day.
0: Uh, about once every five or six days i treat myself to a hot shower
2: <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah and, and man- you, you
0: appreciate it so much more i swear
1: wow okay you've inspired me i'm gonna try it out
0: okay uh, uh, yeah lucy please tell me if you don't feel significantly better after because i've never heard i've never heard someone come out of a cold shower and feel like a bit lethargic and they didn't know what they're gonna do today and uh yeah, But
2: maybe that's because they felt so bad during the cold shower that once it ended, it was almost like, oh, thank God for this. We're out. We, the punishment has finally ended, you know? Whereas when you have a hot shower, it's that soothing feeling that I drained the tank. My poor girlfriend has to have a cold shower after I'm, I'm in there because I'll be in there for half an hour. Um, so I don't know. I, you go ahead, Lucy, but I'll, I'll
0: stick to my hot showers. Don't worry, Lucy. We'll get set someday. someday. <laughs> uh, Lucy, I wanted to ask, right, am I right in saying there appears to be a correlation between the frequency with which somebody experiences awe and their expression of compassion and kindness.
1: Yeah. So there's a really interesting, relatively new, um, science called the science of awe, which, um, uh, comes out of California, uh, Berkeley, uh, Berkeley. And, um, it's this guy called Dasha Keltner who's been studying awe and how it affects people's bodies and minds. Um, and, um, well, it affects them a lot more than you might think. So, obviously, we all like to feel awed. And for many of us, that would be through kind of a natural experience like a waterfall or or just something beautiful, like blossom even maybe. But, you know, for others it could be a beautiful piece of like a Jimi Hendrix solo or Mm. um, an amazing painting. So, um, or has mental health uh, benefits. It also has been found to um, predict reduced levels of cytokines, which is a biomarker um, uh, which uh, tells us about inflammation um, and you know, you do not want loads of information. It's just not, not good for you at all. So it suggests that, um, it's good kind of physically and mentally or, but in terms of compassion, so one of the, um, one of the paths these guys went down was, um, testing how awe might, um, change perceptions of the self and, and of other people and how we behave and treat others. So what they did is they showed, um, A group of participants, um, a video of canyons and mountains and other awe-inspiring scenery and they showed um, another group, a kind of a natural scene that was supposed to be funny which I don't even know what that could have been. I tried to find out, I I thought it might be like a bear slipping on a banana skin or something, I just do not know. But anyway um, and afterwards the groups were told that they won a prize um, and asked if they wanted to share the cash prize with strangers. And the people in the the odd group um, were happy to and wanted to share, and then the other the non awed group uh, were less keen. And they 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 replicated this experiment a number of times. In one, I think they did something like they showed one group some beautiful massive tree redwoods or something, and another group a building. And then they dropped pens on the floor, a load of pens, and then the 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 tree group were more likely to help pick the pens up um and the other group were not so um so they concluded that people are more kind and generous and ethical after after feeling awe and i guess that i mean it kind of makes sense on one level of you know if you're in a good mood i don't know about you but if i feel good i'm more likely to be nice if i'm in a terrible mood i'm probably a bit ratty and mm-hmm. cranky and difficult to be around but also they um, they looked at what was happening in the brain in this experiment, and they found that all was actually reducing activity in the area associated with the sense of self, which is um, the default mode network um, and that that relates a lot to my personal experience of addiction um, and recovery, uh, which is that you know when I was kind of in the thick of it um. And it's the same when I've had periods of depression since. Um, I'm very much kind of, you know, it's all brooding about the self and kind mm. of can't really get past past what's going on in my mind. Um, whereas, you know, it's something that in, in kind of the recovery groups that I've been part of, they talk about it as addiction FM or the washing machine head of, you know, this kind of buzzing of just like self-hatred mm. basically um but and i've I have found sense that being awed you know does seem to kind of take me out of myself when I can become um you know in that in that kind of brooding state, so yeah, pretty cool
0: yeah it's it's um it's funny you mentioned that because i only last week I was chatting to my friend will with a podcast that will come out in the future about his role to recovery, and he he refers to his brain as like a beehive. Mm. and and that there's just constantly all these buzzing bees just everywhere and um
1: that's good I can relate to that
0: yeah yeah yeah. but uh it also when I when I read that this ah this awe research it made so much sense to me as well because I don't know when you when I think of awe I think of seeing something so beautiful that is so much bigger than me that like all of a sudden you're like oh there yeah like there there's something bigger than me and then maybe like you said something small like I don't know uh leaving some food for somebody that you maybe wanted the last piece of something or picking up pens something like this all of a sudden it doesn't it's not even a question of would I or should I it's of course because there are other, other people there's something it's not just me you know mm-hmm. um yeah That's and it was just, a good
1: point yeah, yeah. I think it, it, it um it also um there's Rachel Carson who wrote Silent Spring which was a kind of talisman for me for losing Eden about mm-hmm. um pesticides um which kind of kickstarted the environmental movement in the 60s um ah, yeah. she wrote about what how wonder would um leaven and kind of reduce our appetite for destruction as a society um and i think that speaks a bit to, that that kind of idea really interested me in you know, I think I guess like if you're if you're not in touch with with the bigger things, you know the not able to look at the night sky and the stars or see a kind of two thousand year old tree or you know be kind of aware of how interconnected we are with such a big family of things um I think that that can lead to. Um, You know, this kind of sense that we have in our our Western societies that man is humans are um, top of the hierarchy and that we can we can take what we like. Um, Mm. And so perhaps, you know, if certain leaders um, like Donald Trump, I don't know, um, (laughs) were more awed or more kind of in touch with those huge things. And I think actually, you know, that they might be might might be less kind of destructive and hateful. I think that speaks yeah. a lot to climate change denial as well. Um mm. that, you know, climate change and, and um you know, natural disasters and so on, they are kind of awesome in the you know, in the the kind of um Power. fundamental meaning of the word. Exactly. And and it's much easier if you are part of the systems that want to deny climate change and create, you know, continue continue business as usual to to deny that those things have the power that they do. Um, so I think, yeah, the science of all is it. It's a pretty interesting and big deal, I think. It's more than it, you know, it. it like a lot of these things with, with Losing Eden, like once I scratched the surface, I was like, oh my, there's a lot. There's a lot here. It's really yeah.
0: Big time. When you consider the future, assuming that there isn't like a huge change in public policy or consciousness, do you envisage like a weaker, less happy race of people because of their isolation from nature? Or do you think we're already seeing the evidence of this right now?
1: Yeah, I think we are already seeing it. So, um, our disconnection from the natural world and our negative treatment of it is. unprecedented level like we spend between one and five percent of our time outdoors um you know so much less than ever in our human history um and you know we live very lives very estranged from the natural world and the living um the processes which are our kind of support living support system um you know we don't see how our food is made or how the land is used uh you know, and so on. We are very disconnected from the earth, which gives us all things, including our breath and our food, and you know the things that we need to keep us alive. Um, and I think that that um, when I was when I was looking into you know this idea that disconnection from nature could actually be a factor in the kind of mental health crisis in the West, and whether planetary despair. Um, was a real thing. At the beginning, I thought this sounds crazy. Like it sounds a bit far out. You know, the idea that our disconnection from nature is making us mentally ill, um, or at least, you know, not healthy mentally. I, as I, as I kind of walked through this journey and and talked to people, I I, I did get to the point where I th- thought. There's no way that we can be living these lives where we are all um, complicit in like the destruction of of habitats and you know huge kind of species reduction rates and and so on and it not to affect us even on a subconscious level, um, and and I guess the 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 other side of that is that the more evidence I found um, for the importance of nature for mental health. The more I realised that as we overlook it as a society, we are doing ourselves um, a disservice, and worse, it, it's almost a harm. Um, you know, so to to box um, communities into flats in cities which have no outside space or no access to um, parks or high quality green space is um is harming those people because it is um disallowing them from experiencing you know the the now proven mental health benefits of contact with nature but i'm interested in you seb and madrid because Mm -hmm. you talked about um how there's not a lot of nature there so i'm interested in what you might think about that and whether
2: Yeah. I mean, Madrid has, Madrid has some of, um, Retiro park is my favorite park that I've been to. Um, it's one of my favorite parks. And so there, there is, there are forms of the nature around, um, but it's not the greenest city you've ever been. There's, I think there's enough. I've definitely experienced in, in lockdown, obviously, because we've had much stricter kind of measurements enforced. Um, you know, we haven't really been, they've only just got lifted. Um, but even then, so I've definitely realized kind of the importance and and how much we take it for granted um having said all of that i've been kind of debating it because i have I'm interested in the idea of um, kind of ownership of land, right? So we talk about Madrid and any Spanish would tell you, oh, that's our capital city, you know, a city made of humans for us, kind of built for our needs, right? Same with London or any other major city. And then only recently, in fact, when I was over in Christmas uh, in London, visiting some friends, we were walking back from a night out and I saw like this fox in the road mm. and it was like this this like the clearest example of this juxtaposition between nature and and kind of human life which we've built for us and how nature kind of adapts and especially when you talk to talk about animals right and um then you see the pictures during lockdown of all of these animals returning to these cities that they maybe haven't been to for maybe even centuries um and i was wondering kind of if you think um this, obviously this show speaks to the resilience of nature and its ability to bounce back, but do you think we should try to reincorporate nature in some form back into our cities and live in union with it? Uh, is that even possible? You know, I'm talking about animals, maybe more than green spaces here, I suppose, but, I, but I'm, you know, I'm an animal nut. And to me, if I, see, even if it's just a fox, which maybe isn't the most kind of exotic animal in the world, but, or a badger, if you see a badger, you're like, Jesus Christ, look at that. It's something that's so different. And, um i think maybe when i see those i don't know i kind of feel like like jim said you're kind of realizing this the sense of oneness the sense of connectivity oh it's not just humans and actually we don't own the world we're just custodians of it right um as the kind of the maybe most intelligent species there is today anyway um i was wondering if you do you think that there's a a possibility you know i I think it'd be such a shame for example you see venice right where you see like the water's crystal clear Mm. there's i think dolphins have returned or something like that you know and you think Oh, would, this is going to be such a shame if we all got, if we don't learn any lessons from this kind of travesty and tragic period that we've gone through. And then if all of a sudden we get loads of cruises back again and the water gets sullied and there's no more dolphins, and then we just kind of revert to type. Do you think it's possible for us to incorporate animals and human life in, in cities?
1: Definitely. I think we can do... Um, so much more than we already do. Um, so on my street, which is in like a town in Hampshire, um, a lot of the verges have been left unmown because, um, because you know, councils are, are focusing on the virus more. And you know, hmm. previously I might have thought road verges, how boring, like not interested. But yeah. um, just by walking around more in my local area, Um, and stopping to actually look i've seen so and like an abundance of species of insect in these in these verges like bees and all sorts of other pollinators and and beetles and lots of different wildflowers um and you know it just shows that you know if you give um the rest of nature a chance to bounce back it does it pretty quickly um Mm. and i just don't understand how you know we're living in a biodiversity crisis insects have like reduced by like loads of percentage and that's really bad news for every everybody including humans um and yet we mow all of our like road verges and roundabouts and um we don't plant for pollinators like there's so much green space which um could be Uh, just given over to to other species and other animals. And there is an exciting movement called Biophilic Cities. Mm -hmm. So um, Singapore is an example of that. Detroit is an example of that, which I write about in Losing Eden, which is quite an interesting story because obviously – Detroit was kind of absolutely hammered um, and left like abandoned, really. Yeah,
2: after Ford. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. But in the last um, however many years, there's now like an abundance of community gardens, and people have been um, kind of rewilding vacant lots, and it's now a biophilic city. And, and, and the impacts of that uh, can be really profound. Um, like you say, habitats for animals, but also mm-hmm. kind of in increasing community. So food growing and uh kind of food donating and, and just having more of a kind of community vibe, using the land together, is something that I've experienced in the last six months where um I started to feel pretty bummed out about uh the planet and mm. you know, but in the the journey of losing Eden, obviously it was a lot about the positives of of nature and mental health, but you know the flip side of it is the negatives of our estrangement from nature and and how mm. climate change and so on will affect our our minds um and as an antidote to that i there's a patch of um um green like old lawn at the back of our houses just left um and so i got together with my neighbors and contacted the counselor and we're we're planting it up to be a kind of nature garden and what i'm hoping is that we'll we'll put bat boxes up and bird boxes and swift boxes and um you know maybe a fox might be able to forage in there i don't know um but just like let you know letting it go for the rest of nature and um uh you know that's just a little example of like you know vacant areas which can yeah be, can be optimized to to allow for the rest of nature for sure my first book was about foxes and i love i love foxes um, <laughs> yeah i know that. that's
2: why i brought up the example i was like let's see if i can yeah um, yeah but i mean I, you talk about that this oh, the name escapes me now and it's gonna bug me but um they were on um desert island discs I oh, it's gonna really annoy me but anyway there was a guest on there and they had um an estate, you know, yeah, they were left in estate. state.
1: three, yeah.
2: Yes, that's the one. That's the one. Yes, and they're like kind of rewilding that their whole that whole estate because basically nothing was growing and and they were trying to see how could they kind of get this farm to be back up and functioning again and then they were talking about how they had like thorns growing and and they were going and you know that their neighbors were complaining that it's an absolute state and it was really ugly and this that and the other and then she just said that we left it and we kind of trusted in nature we were like look these thorns are getting a bit out of hand here but look we're not we have said that we're not going to touch anything so let's just not touch anything and see what happens and then oh, if I remember remember correctly i think she said something along the lines of like there was um no worries <laughs> uh, something along the lines of like there was a load of butterflies or something happened like in that nature that kind of took control of the thorns the thorny bushes and now they have cows there and the cows are left free to wander and it can be a bit of a nightmare to try and find them all because they're left free just to wander all over almost just like almost like you know wild animals um and i'm wondering if, if you've Yeah, we talk about nature in terms of parks and stuff. But also, you know, where we get our food from, I read a stat somewhere that the broccoli that we eat now compared to the broccoli that we ate in the 1970s is something like 60% has less nutrition in it. Um, Sorry. No worries. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it has something like 60% less nutrition in it or something along those lines. And I was wondering, do you believe, I mean, that's a clear example, right? But do you believe that we could do more and that maybe farmers could do more to have kind of, Wild habitats, like you said, monocultures are not good for wildlife. Do you think we could do more to kind of inf- maybe enforce that or promote that idea that through wildlife you can still grow enough food to kind of support the human population and, and actually better quality food as a result?
1: Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important things that we need to. Um, think- oh, I'm so sorry, my mum.
0: Could- <laughs> no worry. I saw
1: like shout out um- to Lucy's mum. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how... I have turned off like my FaceTime and stuff. She's in Scotland, so um, I don't well, obviously I don't see her now. Sorry about that. Um, no worries. Yeah, I think how we use the land for agriculture has to change and has to be kind of one of the priorities of thinking about how um how we live kind of more in harmony with the rest of nature and reduce some of our our negative impact. There are some really great um organic farmers and kind of sustainable regenerative farmers out there who um are using their land and um, there's a guy called james rebanks who wrote the book the shepherd's life he's really worth following on twitter if you you're on twitter and you're interested in this because mm-hmm. he is um doing so much to his land to kind of produce food which people need but also um you know bring in rivers and hedgerows and habitats for for animals and he's really showing how how it's possible for it to be done um but i think i guess and and this kind of speaks to other um conversations we've other little chats we've had um there does maybe need to be a um a kind of overhaul or like a recalibration of our relationship with with the natural world um mm. and with the land um um, you know from kind of you know foxes are still seen as pests and vermin and and people yeah. shoot them and uh you know they're they're kind of loathed uh, in many places um and uh you know farmers are subsidized by the government uh not not to not to support other animals on their on their land but to kind of produce a, as high a higher yield as possible um mm. so i think that you know these Things need to be part of a kind of an, an almost like an emergency turning towards a different way of, of thinking about of thinking about how we how we are stewards of the land and you know, how to be good humans and allow allow space for other species and and live kind of sustainably with the rest of nature.
0: Yeah, even on a more uh, like a local uh, or more personal level I wanted to ask like did you do you think people particularly living in the west actually know how much needs to change if we are to live uh, in closer harmony with the natural world uh, the example that comes to mind is uh, and I don't want to bash my dad I love my dad but when I came back uh, from li- living in Denmark for a few months I was sa- explaining to him that uh, the place we live the, we use the toilet, the toilet paper. We use, we put the toilet paper in the bin and not in, down the toilet, because you know we never think of where the paper paper goes. But surely that's not the best for the environment.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh,
0: I said it to my dad, and I was like, oh, w- what do you think about possibly it taking off here?" And he and he just looks at me. He's like, "I just don't think it will take off." son. <laughs> 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 and and yeah, and this is this yeah. it's it's. Uh, i wonder yet yeah, like have even have you had a like a a personal anecdote or have you thought about how difficult it's going to be to actually hey, hey guys almost everything we do needs to change in some manner if we really are serious about this
1: yeah i guess um yeah whenever i like not wanting to bash my mom but whenever I go up to see her and I kind of try not to eat as like meat that much and and try and be plant-based as much as I can. And that's always, it's always been a bit of an issue, you know, like even that, but, you know, I, I, I was brought up with meat three times a day. Every Mm, single meal mm, had meat mm. when I was a child. That was an, you know, it's not a a meal if it doesn't have meat. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think that can be quite challenging to people, I mean even things like um I think it's really interesting talking to kind of older generations about um kind of climate change and and nature uh disconnection and so on because you gotta be re- i find i think shame is really toxic um i find if i'm sometimes talking to someone of an older generation you know a boomer who has is living like a life where they're flying loads and, and, and etc and and you know not really wanting to think about their carbon footprint um uh you know and it's not my responsibility to correct anyone's behaviors i mean i'm i'm hardly living like a particularly uh, carbon-free lifestyle obviously but um i think there is quite a lot of shame and defensiveness and i think that is one of the um the real big obstacles in in maybe the that kind of older group who have a lot of voting power and a lot of financial power seeing that um like things are going to have to change because it kind of maybe it's a, like a criticism of how they've chosen to live their lives and no one wants yeah. to think I've spent, however many, decades ruining the planet. It's like a horrible, horrible thing to think of. I think everyone, and I think that means that, you know, there's a lot of denial, um, you know, in a kind of unconscious. It's something that, that the farmer Wendell Berry talks about, a kind of unconscious planetary suicide that, you know, none of us can kind of see what we're doing, and but also we don't want to know because it, it's a horrific thought. So, um, but like I think I was probably less hopeful until the last couple of years, where you know the climate activism and and XR and Greta and the Sunrise movement and you know seeing even like seeing climate change on the front pages, um, that seems like a new thing. It it does feel like something is changing, maybe, Mm. Um, and. I don't know. I think what what I've found is that doing little things locally, community things, whereas I may have in the past dismissed that as not being, I think, just feeling kind of a bit disenfranchised and thinking there's nothing I can do to make a difference. But actually, actually, if, you know, people do little things, and just from like you know, leaving your lawn unmown, or thinking about where to spend your money, and yeah. Um, yeah you know, thinking about a reciprocal relationship with the land rather than a dysfunctional one,
0: yeah, it would be Small step by small step. Yeah. What uh, do you guys
1: yeah. think? Are you kind of hopeful or do you think that we could change or do you not, not think so?
2: Um, I'm sceptical. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I like I've been thinking about this coronavirus and um, thinking of how much will human behavior change forget I mean just forget nature just in terms of maybe connection with our friends now we realize how important it is once we've been the ta- ones that options have been taken away from us how important will it be to connect with our friends and and you know maintain the good habits that we've kind of built up during this lockdown and there's a part of me that's optimistic and goes yeah I think we'll all make a change but then it's also part of me this is talking about myself as well who goes yeah but maybe after two or three months we'll revert back to type and yeah. when I think about and, and that's just kind of in every aspect and then when I think of the you know you look at Brazil for example, and what what that prime minister over there is doing the president over there is doing when it's fueled with financial greed, and these conglomerates are just earning millions if not billions um at the expense obviously of of wildlife, animals, or whatever it may be. I find it difficult to think that that will change on a global scale. I do think obviously you see the movement of veganism, for example, vegetarianism, and even people like me, I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan, but I definitely try to eat less meat, like you say, instead of eating three times a day, maybe just once a day or something like that. I think that might change, but I I wonder how much, you know, and and then you look at, you know, the fact that Britain, for example, we didn't meet our our targets that we made a decade ago um, and many other countries didn't meet theirs. And so I think there's a part of me that wants to be optimistic and go, yeah, I think we can do this. But then there's a part of me that goes, history would tell you otherwise, you know?
1: Yeah, but then I I guess, you know, things are going to change whether we like it or not. So it's like... Mm. You know the the predictions for the for forty or fifty years. I think about this a lot because of my young children. Oh, yeah, mm. I'm terrified every day because I think, are they going to survive past forty? So, yeah, I think you might be right that we won't be able to make a change quick enough. But then things will change, and it will be much worse for kind of you know people, people of color, and people in like less affluent societies and. Mm-hmm it's just going to exacerbate inequalities so I don't know I I find I'm pessimistic too but I think rallying against it is is better than not
2: yeah and and I think what I think the one one of the good things that this lockdown has shown is that bounce back ability that nature has I mean we were seeing those pictures of dolphins returning to Venice after maybe two to three weeks after the lockdown which it, it Mm. given the circumstances no time at all and that's not to say that you know Italy should go into a lockdown for two to three weeks every year to kind of balance out the amount of cruise ships that go to Venice but it just goes to show that maybe actually we don't need such drastic measures to potentially get fruitful results you know maybe it kind of shows the the resilience that nature has and if we kind of can heed those lessons then maybe we can learn but like you said i, I try to be optimistic but there's always that nagging thought in the back of my head that goes uh, how much how many leaders like donald trump are really bothered about you know <laughs> yeah. how many leopards there are in the jungle when they can make billions
0: um i don't know i don't know uh, lucy i watched your recent interview with nick hunt and one point that was raised which i thought was quite interesting was that given all the research surrounding the benefits of nature to our health that there might be a potential danger in the future of people maybe looking nature and uh, looking at nature as like a service that gives us something which would also miss the point you know
1: mm. yeah i think that's really important. Um important question and idea which um i was really conscious of in the writing of losing eden so so obviously i was writing a book about why spending time in in natural world or not affects our mental health um uh so uh obviously that was coming at it from quite a mechanistic point of view and thinking about what nature can give us and what we're getting from it Mm um but i also wanted to kind of weave into the book and this is how I feel that you know the the, even just the idea of nature, like the word is kind of um absurd because we we are nature Mm -hmm. um Mm. you know and you know it's a kind of a false a false difference. Um I think that we do as a society see nature as, you know, what can it give us? So we have phrases like natural capital. Um which is how the government um in the u k um considers the natural environment, so what can it give us what how much is it worth
0: yeah. um so the
1: other day yeah it was it was again it was um uh, a figure came out for what nature in Britain is worth, and it was like a few some some trillions or something um and I think that just kind of it's just like a gross and like the wrong way of thinking about it yeah. um but saying that, it is how a lot of people think. Um, uh, I wasn't too worried about, um, you know, setting up nature as as a place to go, as a treatment or as a, a with therapeutic potential, because I do think that, um, from what I can see, uh, if people have that kind of connection or reconnection with the natural world it does lead to a kind of feeling of love and affection and respect and the evidence shows that this too that it can lead to pro-environmental and conservation behaviors um so so while I, i do think it's like an important thing to think about uh and i think the way we we talk about like you know making the woods work for us or how can we you know, when I was when I was applying for funding for this nature garden at the back of my house, it was like, how is this in the public interest? It's like, does it have to be? Like, can mm-hmm. it not just be all nature? Um, but saying that, I think we're so estranged and we're so disconnected that um, I think we're quite far away from uh, it being a problem and, and, and actually like a renewal of wonder and awe and love and care is... Is what's needed, and if that's going to be from someone, you know, hearing about nature and mental health and going to a park and using that park to heal to soothe their minds, uh, I don't think that that's a that's a problem. And 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 it's certainly for me, as the kind of j- my journey of nature connection has continued, I've definitely wanted to find a kind of reciprocal relationship. So yeah, um, you know, growing up like. Oh, I've I kind of remember, like, so so horrible to admit this, but I think I remember being on walks with my family, and it being like okay to throw litter around or something, or okay to pick mm. flowers and just like stuff like that. Which, you know, like having more of a kind of care ethic and thinking, how can I give back to nature, or, or what can I do in my little ways to to like make it a more less dysfunctional relationship, you know?
0: Yeah. Thanks for that, Lucy. Uh, I, you've t- already touched on it, I guess. With you talking about your garden, uh, I wanted to ask: How has your life changed, or how have you? What changes have you made in your life since making the discoveries you had uh, with um, losing Eden?
1: Mm. I think that now, like whereas I might have thought going for a walk outside, um, uh was not like self-indulgent but like was a kind of extra um or like I mean having young children any parcel a tiny parcel of time I kind of think oh I should be I should just be with the kids or something you know anything that's self-care it's, it's really tricky to 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 build any self-care in because they don't need so much but now I would say um actually me going to like my cemetery park next to my house for half an hour is really important for my mental health um it's not just like a kind of oh it feels good it's like okay i know now that there are so many different um pathways by which nature connection affects mental health That i'm gonna make sure we do it so in lockdown for example we have been going for a walk every day just like without fail obviously we're lucky that um we're able to do that over here but Mm. that as a kind of preventative measure um i think has 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 helped um and then i suppose also with the evidence so one of my favorite things i found out for losing eden was um about fractals which are shapes which are found all over the place in nature and it's like the same shape but, but repeated and replicated and in increasing size and they're everywhere like trees leaves fla- flowers plants and um, and um i found some amazing evidence which showed that When we look at fractals, our areas of the brain associated with calmness and relaxation are activated. And that uh, looks like it's because the the human eye itself is fractal. So it kind of locks into place. Um, And so now I know that, for example, I'm always looking for fractals, which you can find the weeds popping out of the cracks in the pavement. And I will take a moment to look at them rather than, just run past them mm. because I know this could be making my brain feel good, you know. So little things like that <laughs> um, help.
0: Nice. Thanks, Lucy. you've been amazing. Uh, but before we let you go, we, we like to ask our guests what do they do to keep on top of their mental health. Now I'm assuming that it, uh, you, you well, you've mentioned that you go to the cemetery close to your house mm. uh, on a regular daily basis. Uh, are there any other. Um, perhaps Um, measures
1: that when I can I go swimming in the rivers um well I mean I do take an antidepressant um haven't had therapy for a while but that's always something that I I'm very keen on Mm -hmm. um let me think reading I love reading um and sleep oh my goodness sleep is major for me uh for me it's just like if I am sleep deprived, my mental health is is affected massively. So that oh, is so boring, but going to bed earlier, early, rock and roll, that's oh, me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Has it ever happened where you've had too much sleep and then also felt that your mental health was a bit out of whack?
1: Yeah, that's weird when that happens, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> what about you guys? What are you doing at the moment to um, keep your mental health up?
0: Well, I... Uh, Basically, since the the virus uh, outbreak and the lockdown, I've been waking up and kind of just reminding myself that I have to do these three things before I can do anything else. Because if I don't do these three things, then I might not feel that good throughout the day. And, you know, I was saying to Seb the other how, like, you know, sometimes where you know you should do something, but then your mind is trying to give you like outs on not to do it, you know, saying, ah, but it's raining today. And, oh, you, you did this yesterday or oh, this and this. But, um, i just every time i wake up i really try to leave the house get some exercise uh, have the cold shower and meditate and and then whatever happens after that i think i'm usually in decent stead like a, i'm usually in good de- decent condition for whatever the day trials mm. Mm,
2: yeah I, I i don't do the cold showers as we've touched on but um the exercise is big now that we're allowed out especially during coronavirus we've been allowed out for only a certain period of time of day but that's been big um and then I like to write poems that may be stuff that's kind of on my mind or maybe sometimes I have a at times I have a theme, like I'm going to write a happy poem now. And then all of a sudden it's like the darkest poem you've ever seen. And it just kind of feel like that needed to come out some way, shape or form. So that's kind of good. Uh, And then I've been trying to listen to music, but when I say listen to music, I mean just sitting there and just listening to the music. like not listening to it whilst you do something else, um, you know, cooking or read it or anything else like that, just to really try to take in that music um, has been, has been big. And then since now that you've, we've just kind of spoken about the awe inspiring, um, research. I've been thinking that maybe because we're only allowed out in Madrid, um, from 6am to 10pm or from, sorry, 6am to 10am or, 8pm uh, to 11pm. I'm thinking maybe if I could get a run in and see like the sunrise, um, then that if I could do that on a daily basis then that would be awe inspiring and maybe that might help. So I'm, I haven't done that yet just to make that clear, um, but I might try to, if I can actually get the, find the willpower to get out of bed, um, then I'll try to do that in kind of be after being inspired by this conversation. But, um, but Lucy, thank you so much for coming on. It's been fascinating stuff fascinating stuff i just wanted to give you the chance to kind of plug yourself all the, the books you've written and um, obviously uh, and where people can find you know on twitter um and and maybe even the publications obviously i know you're a freelancer but may the publications that you kind of work for m- most frequently so if people want to look out for your stuff where sure. they could find it
1: sure so my latest book losing eden why our minds need the wild is out now published by alan lane you can get it wherever you normally get your books um uh my first book foxes unearthed is also in the same places i write a column for the independent i write quite a lot for the guardian um and uh kind of other places too uh i'm on twitter lucy jones and i'm on instagram um and i just post quite a lot of Nature shots. That's very wholesome,
2: some stuff. wholesome stuff. Very yeah, wholesome stuff. <laughs> exactly. If you're if you're stuck in a city, just go to Lucy's uh, social media and you feel like you've been immersed. Uh, but no, great stuff. We'll put all of that stuff in the in the show notes, guys. If you didn't catch that, um, so you can find all the links there. Uh, thank you for anyone who's listened, and if anyone um, thinks this may be of interest, any of their friends, family, or anyone else, please pass it on. And as always, like, rate, and subscribe. But until now, enjoy, stay safe, and have a walk in a park. Thanks, Bye. Lucy.
1: Thank you.